5: The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hello, good morning. This is Ken Murray. Welcome to the Michael Reid Show. Michael will be back with you tomorrow, so you're stuck with me until 11 a.m. this morning. Very busy program. Lots to get through between now and 11 a.m. And if you want to get in touch, our text number is 86 Now, we start this morning with uh, an issue that it seems uh, shows no sign of ever going away in this country, and that's the issue of hospital waiting lists. According to Sinn Féin... There are now something like 877,000 patients waiting for care and more than 234,000 people waiting for more than a year. This is a staggering figure and uh, it seems it's one that, despite problems with slant care and despite various problems for Ministers for Health, it seems it's one that won't go away. I'm joined on the line right now uh, by David Cullinan. Uh, David, first of all, you seem to be the only one making the running on this. How bad is the situation?
0: quite bad at the moment. It's, it's obviously bad for patients who are waiting for care, but it's also bad for staff and for specialists who work in healthcare right across the board. And we know there is huge pressure and huge stresses on frontline healthcare workers. So the figures are actually more stark than the 900,000 people who are waiting for access to acute hospital care. That's just under 900,000 people who are waiting, uh, first of all, for a hospital appointment to see a consultant, and then many on inpatient waiting lists waiting to to get hospital treatment. There's also a further 400,000 people who are on community waiting lists or people waiting for a scan or a diagnosis. So that's 1.3 million people on some form of health waiting list. Now, obviously, some people are on multiple lists, but it's still almost one in four people in the population of this state waiting for, for some form of health care treatment. So it's quite horrific when you look at the figures. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for us. The first is we don't have capacity in our hospitals, in some hospitals, It's not all about beds in some hospitals. It is beds and we don't have enough inpatient beds. It's also about surgical theatre capacity. It's about diagnostic capacity, hospital equipment. And there's a dire shortage of of equipment and, and capacity in the system. We also have 700 consultant posts which are not filled on a permanent basis. And there's a number of reasons for that. The first is the pressures that consultants are under. And it's the same with junior doctors, with nurses, with healthcare assistants, many of them are opting to leave abroad rather than come and work in a chronically understaffed, under-resourced health service. And those 700 uh, vacant posts are causing real difficulties because it means that we don't have enough consultants to see patients, which is driving up the, uh, the outpatient wait times. Uh, there is a lot of sore points that consultants have raised over the last number of years, including the fact that uh, consultants who came into th- their posts since 2012 are on a uh, 30% pay level less than those who came in pre-2012 because of cuts that were made at that time that were never reversed. And, and also the pressures, as I said, with not having capacity, fighting and battling with the system to get basic access to equipment, surgical theatre slots and so on, all adds to pressures. And that's in, in the first instance where we have almost 700 posts not filled on a permanent basis. But right across the board, we're struggling to hire staff. We can't hire home helpers, despite the fact that we have millions of additional home health helpers funded over the last number of years in budgets. They can't be used because we can't hire the staff. We have uh, speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, child psychologist posts which can't be filled. 700 of those posts to support children with disabilities are unfilled at the moment. And there are again reasons for, for all of that recruitment and retention issues. So unless can we get to the bottom of all of those issues in terms of, in the first instance, training more staff, uh, increasing the training places uh, in third and fourth level institutions to ensure we have more of a pipeline of graduates coming through, but also address the retention and the recruitment issues and the reasons why many of them are not opting to come and work in the public system and why many of them are leaving and going abroad. I think we're going to continue to see these very high numbers of people waiting for care, but also uh, the uh, length of time that people are, are waiting getting longer as well.
5: OK, let me put this question to you. How much of this uh, 877,000 figure of people waiting for treatment in hospitals has been if you like contributed to by the COVID-19 pandemic. In other words up to March 2020 people who were expected to go on holidays, everything had to be put on hold so you had this massive backlog building up and now suddenly we have this massive number and I suppose what I'm saying to you is how much of this has been driven by COVID?
0: Partly some of it is obviously driven by COVID. It was exacerbated by COVID, but if you go back to 2017, long before COVID existed, we had very similar numbers of people on acute hospital waiting lists. Uh, We started to make some inroads, but then it got worse obviously during COVID and we're back to pre-pandemic levels. But we've had a crisis in healthcare for a long, long number of years, which preceded COVID. If you look at many of the challenges that frontline healthcare workers face, These issues are, in some cases, 20 years in the making. So medical scientists were on strike a number of weeks ago, issues going back 20 years. We have NCHDs and junior doctors who are working illegal hours uh, in breach of European Union directives, in breach of agreements that were made with the HSE. Some of them working 24-hour shifts simply because we don't have enough NCHDs and huge pressure on those junior doctors. Those issues in terms of access to training, having reduced hours, doing proper hours, are 10 years in the making, if not more. So lots of the issues which are impacting on the ability of the HSE to recruit uh, are going back long numbers of years and long before COVID. But when you look at what's happening in the hospitals, obviously the temptation is to look at the capacity in the hospitals, which is important. And I spoke about some of those issues in terms of inpatient bed capacity, surgical theatre capacity, hospital equipment, diagnostic equipment. But you have to take two steps back and look what's happening elsewhere. Because the reason why we have very high wait times in our hospitals, including in our emergency departments, is because of real capacity issues in general practice, uh, but also in community care. About 40% of people who are presenting to emergency departments are people who should be cared for in the home, and people who should be cared for in the community. We have a real crisis now with GP capacity. Uh, we have people waiting longer to get access to a GP out of our services in many, many areas. as patchy and in some areas non-existent. Uh, and that forces more and more people to attend emergency okay. departments, which continues to put the pressure on. So when you okay. have... Problems happening right across the board, Ken. All of that manifests itself in our emergency departments, and we're seeing that at the moment.
5: Okay, so the uh, average listener listening to this programme might say that if Sinn Féin were in government tomorrow and you were the Minister for Health, what would you do to address the crisis? Well, the first
0: thing I would do is establish a high-level group on workforce planning to bring together the Minister for Higher Education, if I was the Minister for Health, but also the Minister for Public and Reform, and look at putting in place real targets to increase training places. Because there is no magic solution to sorting out any of the problems in the healthcare service. And far too often we've had these short-term solutions and sticking plaster solutions, putting more money into the National Treatment Purchase Fund. We have to start looking at the pipeline of graduates coming through increased training places because we know we have a chronic shortage of staff in so many critical areas, which is impacting on the ability of the HSE to recruit and then deliver services. The first thing to do is to set very ambitious targets to increase training places. I would then put in place a job guarantee for all health graduates, and I would ask the HSE to engage much more robustly and and proactively with graduates in their final year to entice them into the public service. But we also have to fix all of the retention issues because... We don't have a modern GP contract. That's something that GPs have been talking about for a long number of years. Uh, The Minister accepts this, but there is still no contract. If you look at dentists, the dental treatment purchase scheme uh, that uh, treats medical care patients is on the verge of collapse. Uh, Over 1,000 dentists, of the 1,700 dentists in the scheme have now left the scheme. Uh, we, We still can't recruit enough nurses. There's issues in relation to the safe staffing framework. That looks at the number of, of nurses in each ward in the hospital that need to be in place. That hasn't been implemented. So I would address all of those issues and put a plan in place that looks okay. at. Okay,
5: well, let me, let me put this. Qu-
0: but also, i finish it can increase yeah, go training ahead. places, but also recruitment and retention. And if you want to retain staff and, and attract staff, you have to deal with all of those contract issues and work issues. Sure. And, these issues.
5: Sure. and th- all those ideas sound very good and logical. But the next question would be, have you and Sinn Féin done a costing on all these proposals? And how much would it cost the taxpayer to put those ideas into practice?
0: Well, it depends on the individual measure. Uh, And last year, we proposed €800 million of an additional spend over and above what the government proposed in our alternative budget. And obviously, this year, we propose an alternative budget again. And when it comes to an election time, it's my responsibility to set out an election manifesto that's costed. But I want to put forward proposals, Ken, which are credible, realistic and deliverable. I've engaged with healthcare trade unions. I've engaged with training bodies. I've engaged with frontline staff and I've engaged with hospital management pretty extensively over the last number of years to better understand the problems. And that's why I'm being honest when I say that there is no quick fix, short-term solutions. There are things that we can do in relation to improving access to care in some hospitals. We obviously need to increase capacity. But the problems I'm talking about are structural. They will take some time to bed in, but they have to be done. And if we don't do them, we're going to continue to see these very high uh, wait times, unfortunately. So for me... It's about much better integrated care. Right, but Part the, the, of the, the problem at the moment is <clears throat> we have different elements of our healthcare system operating in silos: community, primary, and acute care. Not sure, sure. Up, but uh, not I, want,
5: I want to put this point to you: the government will say that uh, the Slauncher Care Program is being developed, albeit that they've lost some senior expertise, and that this matter will be addressed in due course. So, how important is it that when Sloughshire Care is finally presented to the public that it addresses all the issues you've just raised?
0: Well, there's a number of issues in relation to Shalonda Care. The first is that it sets very, very ambitious targets for wait times. So we're way, way off the targets that were set. So, for example, it's a maximum 12 weeks for an outpatient appointment. On average, at the moment, people are waiting 14 months to see a hospital consultant. So we have a huge way to go to get anywhere near those targets. But Shlanta Care quite rightly identified the problem I've been talking about, which is... You have to take two steps back from your hospitals to understand why we have the crisis in our hospitals. It's partly capacity in the hospitals, but it's also people who have chronic pain, for example, who should be managed in the community, who can't be. We have people in acute hospital beds who can't be discharged into the community because we don't have the rehab beds, the recovery beds. And then we have the crisis in GP care at the moment. And one of the big promises of Shalanta Care, aside from reducing waiting lists, was to reduce the cost of health care. move to a single-tier universal healthcare system with free GP care. We're nowhere near the targets which have been set and the reason for that is because we simply aren't hiring the GPs to be able to have the foundations to deliver on this. So the HSE concede themselves that we need to hire in net terms an additional 1,600 GPs over the next five years. On top of that they indicate that 500 GPs will retire so that's 2,100 GPs that need to be hired over the next uh, uh, five years. We're only training 250. So where are the GPs going to come from? So th- that's the point. You have to ratchet up training places. And you asked me what I would do. I would set up that high level group, but I would also set a target of at least a 10% increase across all medical training places uh, each and every year for the next five years. And in some areas, increase that further. Because if you can't get the home health hours, our, our home help staff to fill the hours, which we can't. It means that people can't be cared for in the home, which means that they end up in hospital. If you can't get the speech and language, occupational therapists, child psychology sure, sure. post filled, children with disabilities, as we know, many of them are missing out on early intervention and a whole range of supports. So I want to ratchet up those training places, but I also want to look at the retention issues and the reasons why uh, many people are not opting to come into public service. And as I said...
5: Yeah, then, just- just one Any final question, David. Are 10,
0: 20 years in the making, why is it taking so long to address those fundamental issues for frontline staff who, who want to do their best and provide uh, better health care for, for patients?
5: David, just one final question. Would you accept that what's happened in this country, whether it be in housing, health or schools, is that the population has grown exponentially since 1998, but the hospital infrastructure has not grown accordingly to, if you like, address this growth in the population and the extension of hospital waiting lists?
0: I think that's part of the problem. Obviously, if you have an increased uh, population, you, get, you have more demands. Uh, the problem is it takes far too long to get things done in healthcare, which is why I want to see reform as well as investment, because it isn't all about money and it isn't all about additional capacity. That's really, really important. And human capacity and more people is at the core of it, because essentially uh, healthcare is about people treating people. So we need more specialists to treat people. But we also need much more accountability in the healthcare system. If you look at the waiting list plan that the Minister published a number of months ago, he set targets for hospitals statewide. There was no targets for each individual hospital, which means everybody is responsible and nobody is responsible. So I want to see these new regional health areas, which have been used for some time to be established, and they want them to better integrate community care, primary care and acute care, have single tiers of management rather than the different layers of management that we have where we can't get things done. It takes six years from conception to delivery for a capital project. And that's not a big project like the National Children's Hospital uh, or a big hospital. These are standard okay. uh, capital projects which can take six years. It takes, on average... 14 months to hire a hospital consultant. Now, how can that be? It can take six months to hire a nurse. So we have to speed up all, all, right. of, all of those processes. And that means devolving more responsibility down okay. into local hospitals and regional structures.
5: Okay, we're going to have to leave it there, David, but something tells me this is an issue. We're going to be revisiting time and time again, and it's only June. God knows what it'll be like in the first week of January. 877,000 people in this country on hospital waiting lists. That's uh, David Cullinan there, the Sinn Féin spokesperson on health. More to come. We'll take a break.
6: Michael, Michael Reid on, on LMFM.
5: FM. And if you want to get in touch, our text number is 0861800658. Now, you may have heard in the news that the British government is planning to introduce a bill that will allow future ministers to basically override the Northern Ireland protocol by emphasising that the British internal market uh, over the EU single market should be the way to go. Now, if this, if you like, bill becomes law it would overturn many of the principles in the protocol and that it would effectively do away with any checks on goods entering Northern Ireland from GB and uh, what they're proposing is what's called in-market surveillance, although nobody's quite too sure what that means. And this then raises the question that if this legislation goes ahead, where exactly will the Irish border be? To discuss this, I'm joined on the line by the Fine Gael spokesperson on Brexit, Senator Neil Richmond. First of all, Neil, uh, the British seem to be going on something of a solo run here. And uh, pardon my English, they appear to be giving the two fingers to Brussels. How serious of a development is this?
7: It's a very serious uh, development, Ken, and it's not just a two fingers to Brussels, but to Dublin, to Washington, D.C., and indeed further afield. We saw the last time the British government tried something like this, they were swiftly rebuked by the prime ministers of both Canada and Japan at a G7 meeting. And it's certainly something that is extremely unpopular internally within the Conservative Party as we see a number of former ministers, senior backbench MPs, you know, the more one-nation Tory wing, saying that they would be aghast if the British government would continue to plough ahead with this plan, which would see them threaten to break international law, if not, indeed, follow up and actually break it.
5: Well, if they break international law, what can Brussels and Washington do to put manners on the British?
7: Well, a whole range of things. So what we have at the moment is there is actually legal action Um, Against the British government taken by the European Commission. And that has been paused. It was paused in the interests of good faith by the European Commission to ensure that negotiations and discussions will continue. I'd say instantly you'd see that legal action continue. You'd see additional legal action start you probably see an element of fines taking place. But realistically, the two big threats, and I hope it doesn't come to it, first of all, the American administration has been very clear that they won't agree uh, a UK-US trade deal if the UK doesn't meet the terms of the protocol. And we could see the end of the withdrawal agreement um, and indeed the post-Brexit trade deal between the EU and the UK, which would be something that would be extremely bad um, for all parties concerned, but particularly bad for the, the UK and the people of Great Britain.
5: The Taoiseach has been speaking in Strasbourg this morning at a plenary session of the European Parliament and he said that this would mark an historic low point signalling a complete disregard for the principles of laws which are the foundation of course of international relations I mean, in terms of potential, how damaging could this development be in terms of what's called the East-West relationship between Dublin and London?
7: would be extremely damaging, Ken. Relations aren't at a, in a good position at the moment. This particular British government have gone out of their way to damage relations between Dublin and London, but particularly London and Brussels. It seems whenever there's an internal crisis in the UK or there's political manoeuvring about, the easiest thing to do is threaten the protocol, bring up Brexit, and the worst part of it all is that the people of Northern Ireland are just used as placing in an internal political discussion in Westminster.
5: As I understand it, the the proposal is that we're going back to a pre-Brexit scenario where goods can move from GB to NI and in the opposite direction, and it's as if uh, there was no Brexit at all. But that then raises the question that if the protocol, the notional border in the Irish Sea effectively is dropped, where then is the border between the UK and the EU? See, this
7: is the problem with Brexit, and particularly the Brexit that this British government has pursued. There has to be checks somewhere, and it has been agreed that there can be minimal checks at the three or four ports of entry um, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Under this new half-baked proposal that we haven't even seen the finality of, that's already been rejected by Northern Irish business leaders, there's no proposal for checks. They talk about in-market surveillance. Now, I get Shivers that we're going back to the notion of alternative arrangements and technological solutions and monitoring things in the workplace, and they're talking about a dual regulatory system. It's a completely unworkable, half baked idea basically to run roughshod over the protocol and fly in the face in the many things that both the British government and the European leadership accepted multiple times over, over the past number of years, simply had to be in position. It opens up a whole can of worms and if the British government wants to go right back to to the first part of the discussion.
5: Right. If you can just hold it there, Neil. We've just got audio in from Strasbourg, and this is the Taoiseach speaking at the European Parliament this morning.
4: I want to pay tribute to the European Parliament which was absolutely clear in its support for the Good Friday Agreement and on the need to find a unique solution that would work for Northern Ireland. That solidarity mattered. That solidarity continues to matter. The unique solution was, of course, the protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland that is an integral part of the withdrawal agreement between the European Union and the United Kingdom. It is perfectly reasonable to look for ways to improve the operation of the protocol, But unfortunately, what we have seen are bad faith efforts to undermine a treaty freely entered into. Instead of trying to create a constructive atmosphere for all to engage, we have actually seen efforts to block agreements or introduce new problems. In contrast, the European Union has worked hard to find ways to ensure that where there's a negative impact on businesses and citizens in Northern Ireland, it is minimised as much as possible. Vice President of the Commission Maroš Šefčovič and his team have done remarkable work in listening to businesses and communities throughout Northern Ireland. They have a deep and practical understanding of the operation of the Protocol. Last October, the Commission proposed a package of measures that would result in a significant reduction in border linked checks. This parliament has also been incredibly constructive. For example, in April you overwhelmingly approved legislation to help safeguard the supply of medicines to Northern Ireland. I have said many times that that, that there are solutions to practical problems under the protocol if there is a political will to find them. But that requires partnership. It requires the United Kingdom government to engage with good faith, seriousness and commitment. Unilateral action to set aside a solemn agreement would be deeply damaging. It would mark a historic low point, signalling a disregard for essential principles of laws which are the foundation of international relations. And <clears throat>
5: That's uh, the Taoiseach speaking in Strasbourg this morning and sounding very irate indeed. So, Neil, you heard there what the Taoiseach had to say. What are the implications for British-Irish relations and particularly for British-Irish trade if the British get their way on this?
7: Well, I suppose the worst case scenario is if you have a situation where this all falls apart and the the trade and cooperation agreement that goes with the withdrawal agreement collapse, all of a sudden you have tariffs and you have a no-deal Brexit comes into into force. That would already really damage the amount of exports going from Ireland to Great Britain, particularly in the agri-food sector. But what we've seen, Ken, one of the great working, outworkings of Brexit is so many of Irish exporters are already going around the UK. They're they're relying on that direct shipping um, from Ireland to the continental Europe to our biggest market. They're no longer doing the land bridge to Hollyhead or Fishguard or wherever, whatever it is. But it really is an extremely worrying prospect that we have a British government that once again is simply ignoring its clear responsibilities, not just to a recent... Um, treaty that it signed, but also as a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement.
5: Uh, Prior to the withdrawal agreement, uh, if you like, being agreed, uh, there was speculation that uh, World Trade Organisation tariffs would uh, kick in on the British on their exports um, if no deal was done. Is that now back on the table in a way of, if you like, punishing the British for their behaviour?
7: Well, it's not a matter of punishment. If, if that was to come into force, that would simply be a choice of the British government. That's what their, the result of their actions is. It's no one else is trying to force anyone or talk about consequences. It's quite clear that if you, can't, um, if you can't negotiate a treaty, be it a trade deal or whatever else, and you can't meet the terms of it, then it falls apart. That's what the British government are, are, are seeing rolling out. They're continuing to put the domestic, internal political concerns ahead of very clear responsibilities. The The rollout of what could happen is extremely worrying. We're not quite at that position yet. And there is a hope that the British government might just, I think, as the Taoiseach might have said yesterday, steady the horses and realise the very real consequences of their political gamesmanship.
5: Just two more questions, Neil, before I let you go. Do you see a scenario where Dublin is going to engage more with Washington to get the Joe Biden administration to put the pressure on the British to back off here?
7: I expect so. I think Minister Byrne is actually in Washington um, and the United States more widely this week. Uh, We had a delegation, as you know, the other week um, led by Congressman Richie Neal. Most importantly, he chairs the Ways and Means Committee, which oversees any potential future trade deals. That's all part of the discussion. But equally, relations with Canada, Japan and other larger countries will be very important to this too.
5: Just one final question, Neil. Uh, Something in my head tells me that this puts the DUP in a very uh, tricky situation because if the protocol goes, they can say to their voters, yes, we got a victory on abolishing the protocol, but the hardliners then in the DUP uh, then find themselves in a situation where they may have to go into the Stormont executive with Sinn Féin, which is something they don't want to do. Would you see it that way? Not necessarily.
7: I think the problem with everything to do with Brexit is the DUP called for it the hardest, the campaign for it the most, but they've never proposed any solutions. They have no solutions at the status quo, either in relation to the protocol and the, and the issues that are being um, arising there. And when it comes down to Stormont, they've no excuse not to go in. Uh, in fact, they've, all, they've never said that they won't go in with a nationalist first minister. So to be honest, I don't really know what the DUP are at, and I don't think they're going to get anything they want.
5: Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. No doubt it's something that's going to rumble on in the weeks and months ahead. That's the Finnegan spokesperson there on Brexit, Senator Neil Richmond. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
6: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on
5: LMFM. Now, as you probably heard in the news over the weekend, there has been anger and disgust on both sides of the community in the north uh, regarding a Facebook video that was put together and uh, made some very derogatory remarks about Michaela Makarevi, uh, who was murdered in Mauritius. Now, uh, the leader of Ain'tu, who is a Ain'tu TD for me, the West, Pather Tobin, has issued a statement of this, but I'm going to come to that in a second in relation to funding for the Orange Order but uh, Pather I don't know if you heard our last discussion there with Senator Neil Richmond what's your reaction to the news that the British appear to be going on a solo run uh, to abolish the Northern Ireland protocol
8: Yeah no, I, it's it's an incredible uh, situation that the British are looking to bring legislation through um, Westminster uh, which would unilaterally uh, decide to abandon a, a deal that they signed up to themselves so Boris Johnson negotiated signed up and uh, got the bill through uh, Westminster, uh, and now he's looking to tear it down, tear it apart. And and that's what's wrong, I suppose, with the British system at the moment. They've entered a period of unilateralism. Um, There's no longer a partnership between um, Britain and Ireland, or or Britain and any other country, uh, for that matter. Um, They're involving themselves in brinkmanship. They're looking to break international law, and indeed, I'd go so far as to say that this is the actions of a rogue state um, and they're doing serious damage to themselves. I, I don't think Britain has ever been more isolated in terms of Europe, America and Ireland. Um, and this is really, really dangerous. Now, I, I do personally believe that what they're involved in is a hardcore negotiation. And this particular bill that they're looking to bring through is an enabling act. So it doesn't, even when the bill passes, and it could take months for the bill to pass, it doesn't necessarily mean that the protocol is dead in the water. But what it means is it enables a minister to make a decision uh, to bring the protocol uh, to an end. Um, and I think that's being done uh, on the basis of, of, of negotiation. For me, I think that the Irish government has to get stronger in terms of how they engage with the British government. And I welcome the fact that Simon Cobley have used stronger language in recent times because the British don't understand subtlety, especially Boris Johnson. And I think we need to show them that if they they proceed down this route, that there will be a significant trade war against them in terms of the European Union. Um, We need to to set out very clearly uh, to them what exactly that will mean and how that will negatively affect uh, Britain economically. And remember, there's a lot of other negative winds blowing at the moment in terms of uh, the a cost-of-living crisis in sure. terms of, you know, a potential world recession. And um, the British would be f- very foolish okay. um, if they were to go down this route of not working together to try and find a solution.
5: Yeah, I was going to say the, uh, the phrase perfidious Albion, which I think was coined back in the 12th or 13th century following the Treaty of Limerick, appears to be alive and well with the English. But I just want to move on. You issued a, a statement yesterday uh, regarding the, if you like, the disgust expressed on both sides of the community in the north following the the mocking of the death of Michaela Macarevi in Mauritius and you basically are raising questions about state funding to the orange order what exactly are you saying
8: yes this was a heartbreaking and um, and sickening thing for anybody who who witnessed this either uh, online or, or elsewhere to see that's a, a, a fantastic young woman who was murdered in the prime of her life um, in such horrific circumstances that anybody could actually uh, take joy or pleasure from that um, and to sing a song in the manner that they did and the fact that they did it in, in unison that's, that this seemed to be learned off that this wasn't the first time that this was sung uh, was you know, really shocking to many people and you know, it... it it's an issue that we and 2 have been looking at for a while. And it's not just in relation to the Orange Order. It's in relation to how funds are, uh, state funds, are given to community organizations in the North. Um, and, you know, you would have flute bands, for example, uh, who were, are involved in, let's say, sectarian tunes or uh, when they march past Catholic churches, you know, sure. they are involved in obscene gestures. And some of these flute bands are, are also um, receiving state funds. And, and also, to be honest, in certain parts of the North as well, groups of people who were very connected to previous paramilitaries on both sides uh, are also in receipt of peace funds and state funds. And what that does in many ways, it, it fossilises the control and the division that existed during the, tr- the time of Troubles. Uh, and it gives these people you know, still phenomenal control over their own communities uh, as well. And, What we're saying in AIM2 is that now that funds that are given into communities in the north really need to be done so in an open, transparent and tendered manner. So OK, well,
5: let me let me put the point to you. You're saying that questions now have to be raised about state and council funding to the Orange Order and certain Loyalist flute bands. Now, in fairness to the Orange Order and in fairness to the Loyalist bands, this is not, if you like, their policy. This appears to be, for the want of a better description, a few rogue individuals off their head on drink, singing things they shouldn't have sang, and they've got everybody in trouble, and that basically at face value, it's an isolated incident. Do you accept that?
8: Well, I, I don't accept that. I think, th- I think in, in truth, actually, this is part of a, a cultural continuum that exists within um, Orangism uh, in the North. Um, the Orange Order ha- was set up for to be a Protestant organisation um, to celebrate the supremacy uh, of Protestantism over Catholicism. It, it marches on an annual basis to celebrate the fact that uh, Protestantism was, you know, su- uh, successful in a battle in our own county in the Boyne, um, you know, hundreds of years ago. And in actual fact, if you look down at some of the detail of, of its own rules, you know, you can't be a, an Orange Order uh, member and go to a Catholic funeral or a Catholic wedding. And indeed, the, the head of the Orange Order was asked recently about that. And he says, well, you know, a person can resign from the Orange Order, go to the funeral and then reapply to join the Orange it's Order, which is
5: absolutely... Farcical, yeah.
8: Farcical situation. So there, there is an inherent culture of aggressiveness, I believe, uh, within the Orange Order, and and also this happens in in an Orange Hall in Dundonalds. And you know, the Orange Order only became concerned about it and only uh, made um, significant noises about it after it became public. You know, so you know, people within that. Lodge would have heard that song,
5: would have been... Uh, would sure, have just, just, just one final question, Paddle, because I'm up against the clock sure. here, but isn't the problem with your argument here that if you withdraw funding to the Orange Order and you withdraw funding to certain loyalist flute bands, you isolate them further, and that in itself, that isolation may in turn uh, generate more hostility towards Catholics?
8: What, what I would say is that uh, most of the isolation that's uh, felt uh, in loyalist areas, and I have met with uh, Protestant groups both in Fermanagh uh, and in Belfast and elsewhere, most of it is coming from the fact that in economic terms, in working class areas, um, they're not getting what uh, they need to be able to get on in life, to be able sure. to build lives for themselves in educational terms. And I actually think if, if we want to reduce the isolation that's felt among some loyalist communities, the best way to do it is try to lift economically uh, those communities right. out of the poverty that they're in, rather than channelling funds into organisations that okay. themselves fossilised the sectarianism of the past.
5: All right, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the line. That's the leader of Ain't Too and TD from Meath West, Pader Tobin. We'll take a break.
6: Michael Reed
5: on on LMFM. If you want to get in touch, the LMFM text number is 086 1800 658. Now, the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children is delighted to announce that it is now expanding the Smart Moves Resilience Building Programme. Now, Smart Moves is for sixth-class students and it's designed to give young people making the transition between primary and secondary schools the skills to increase their overall resilience. Well, to find out more about smart moves i'm joined on the line right now by sinéad mckee who is the community engagement manager with the ispcc uh, first of all sinéad what exactly is the smart moves program and how does it work
1: so the smart moves program is basically for six class teachers and students so we post them out packs and in each pack students get their own workbook and the teacher gets lesson plans for 15 lessons lasting half an hour each. And each lesson is all based on resilience theory, on I suppose elements that will help boost their confidence going into first year. So we look at things like problem solving, how to manage emotions, how to solve some worries or challenges, and um, solving uh, arguments with friends. We also look at practical things like getting getting the school bus for the first time, um, sleep. So it's a mixture of all the key, I suppose, research, research factors that will support young people to make that transition. And not only is the program for young people, but we also, for any school that signs up, parents can access some of our videos where we give some hints and tips to parents around supporting your, your son or daughter with the transition into first year.
5: OK, well, let me ask you this. I mean, is this a problem? Because I know I know when I went from primary to secondary school, you you just went into secondary school, you worked out in a matter of weeks who your close friends were and you just got on with life and you, you knuckled down and uh, you built up your own resilience.
1: Yeah, I suppose, look, we work with thousands of young people across Ireland with the ISPCC and we are seeing high anxiety among young people and we're seeing a lot of school avoidance, which is different to school refusal. So school avoidance is where you have a young person who does want to um, go to school, but maybe they have high anxiety about aspects um of school so we support them to get them back into the school system. So I'm I'm glad that you had a positive experience, but unfortunately not every young person has that. And the biggest thing we find with young people and the research back backs this up is that a key priority for young people when they move to school is feeling they belong, feeling they fit in and making friends. And if those things don't happen quite quickly in first year, it can be difficult sometimes to, for a young person to, to stay in school or even to have the motivation with the academic side if the social side of things isn't working out for them.
5: Is the problem here, if you like, um, I suppose, trying to develop the confidence of a young boy or girl moving into a secondary school in that Starting off in a new institution can be a little bit intimidating, a little bit scary, a feeling, a sense of being lost, uh, not knowing who your new friends are and how you settle in. And I suppose one thing that a lot of us went through when we started our first year in secondary school was that the uh, the final year in secondary school always treated the first years as people they could, dare I say, kick around and and treat as as underlings. Is that the type of culture that exists uh, for people making the move from primary to secondary?
1: Yeah, look, obviously in terms of bullying, which which you're talking about, always exists. Um, those traditional forms of bullying are still there as well as cyber bullying. And with bullying, there's also the power imbalance. So you have often an older student with a younger student Um So, yeah, that absolutely does exist. But I suppose there's maybe different pressure now on young people that there wasn't, you know, when you were were changing schools and for me. Um, But I suppose what the beauty of this programme really is that we don't know what challenges young people will, will face in, in secondary school, and this programme really just gets them to think about what supports are there for them, what are their resources, um, who they, who can they go to if they need support, and I suppose it gives them the language and the confidence to, to speak up if they're having any challenges. And, you know, today, for example, as, as our junior cert and Leaving Cert students start, you know, that can be a time of anxiety, and our programme is designed... You know, I suppose not just to help with the transition, but also to help them through secondary school. The students get to keep their workbooks, which, which we call actually a diary or a journal. We tell teachers and parents not to look at that, only to look at it if you're invited to um, by the young person. And that's, I suppose, their, I suppose, toolkit that they can look back on in times of stress.
5: So this Smart Moves programme, um, how is it applied? I mean, is it a case of uh, you go into the schools and you basically give guidance to those in sixth class or is there parent involvement or do people have to go to certain centres uh, and get lectures?
1: So how it works is basically we're going uh, with best practice and, and, and the research which tells us that the class teacher is best the best person to facilitate this program. That's because they would have, I suppose, a familiarity with the students in their class who may be struggling a little bit more. They would have an insight into the child's strengths, but also the areas that they've had challenges in the past. So they would facilitate the program in the classroom. Um, There's 15 lessons, so over the space of 15 weeks. But on top of that, we would send the school resources for parents, including videos. And we encourage parents to check in with their young person. Look, how are you getting on with smart moves? Um, You know, do you want to chat to me about anything on your mind? Um, Because again, the research shows that the more you involve a parent or carer with the transition, the more successful outcome for that young
5: person. And uh, how has this been received by, we'll say, teachers and school management?
1: really really positively we're actually blown away by the response we started with i suppose a pilot of 54 primary schools in ireland last year the feedback has been unbelievable from young people and from teachers just a very child-friendly easy to use program um, and children telling us you know i feel more confident i feel more brave i feel I have the skills now to tackle what what with this change um so really positive feedback, and we're excited now to expand to 150 schools. And we started doing some media on this in the last few days. And you know, I'm just blown away. It's it's it's. There's obviously, um, we we found the gap, I suppose, for this type of program. we and we're delighted to to support school communities with this transition. So yeah, a, a fantastic response.
5: Okay, and then is there a follow-up in first year? Do you assess as to whether or not the Smart Moves uh, programme has developed a positive result? I mean, do you go into first-year students and say, how did you cope? Has it helped you to uh, move on? Do you feel more confident now that you're in first year and is it producing good results in the class?
1: Okay, so uh, we have a Mary Immaculate PhD student on board with us this year who's going to use some measurement tools in some of our schools so she will do pre and post evaluations with the young people who go through this program with sixth class students but we also I suppose have a smart moves first year program and we'll, we'll be piloting on a small scale and um, that material with first year students and yeah long term we want to evaluate and measure the impact and um, to see whether this is making difference we do know we 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 I suppose we have the license for the, for this program. We we brought it over from the UK. So we have the University of Brighton were involved in the creation of Smart Moves, but we also had an independent evaluation from Royal Holloway in London. So the outcome for Smart Moves in in both last year in secondary school and first year in in post primary has been really positive in the UK, and we now want to. We, we've changed some of the lexicon to suit Irish terminology and we we are and we will be continuing to measure the impact for young people.
5: Finally, Junaid, if parents are listening to this programme and their young Johnny or Mary are in sixth class and they have concerns that perhaps the move from sixth class into secondary school or post-primary, as it's known, um, have concerns about that, where can they get more information?
1: So, I would say for for parents is to check out our website ispcc.ie. They can contact us if they think their school would be interested in Smart Moves and we have a registration form for Smart Moves on our website. But we also have a support line for parents Monday to Friday between 9 and 1 every day. It's a confidential support line if they want a bit of extra, I suppose, um, support and guidance from our therapeutic
4: support workers.
5: OK, we'll leave it there. That's it. Sinead McKee, who is the Community Engagement Manager with the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Now, you will recall yesterday we spoke to Danny Fitzpatrick about the taxi problem in Navan. Uh, before the end of the programme, I'm going to read you out a statement from Meath County Council in relation to some of the issues raised there. But in the meantime, we'll take a break.
6: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
5: FM. And if you want to get in touch, the LMFM text number is 086180065. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you that the price of petrol and diesel has reached a record high. And in fact, the rate of increase uh, hasn't been seen in this country since the early 70s when uh, OPEC, the oil producing exporting countries in the Middle East, decided to up the price of uh, oil and uh, therefore created a massive recession back in the 1970s. But we're back there again. And in some cases, depending on where you buy, uh, the prices for petrol can range from as high as two euro and 16 cent per litre, to ninety four per litre. Uh, and the signs are that uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. Well, to assess why this is happening and where we're at, I'm joined by Kevin McPartland. He is the CEO of Fuel for Ireland, which is a representative body for companies who import, distribute and market liquid fuels uh, and operate forecourts around the country. Kevin, first of all, will you explain to listeners why this massive increase in the cost of petrol and diesel is amongst us at present.
3: Yeah, good morning, Ken, and thanks for inviting me on. Um, this, look, there's, there's a, the obvious thing is the, is the tragic situation in Ukraine. When you have a third of all of Europe's uh, oil and gas was coming from Russia, when, you, when, people, when they invaded, people in Europe decided they didn't want to do business with Russia anymore, and started moving away. So when you take that one-third out of the equation, it has had a massive impact in terms of supply uh, into Europe, and yet demand has remained the same. You couple that with um, a very strong dollar, because wholesale prices are calculated dollars against the euro. You have um, now the announcement that the formal sanctions are coming into place, and that means that people who had been slow to make that move away from Russian product and we hadn't in Ireland, we had largely eliminated any Russian stock coming in, um, uh, but other countries that had been slower are now chasing the same suppliers that we have been, been using uh, for a long period of time, um, and that is all increasing demand. And then there's a, there's a strange little quirk that happens at this time every year, <clears throat> which is the American Memorial Day holiday kicks off a massive... Uh, driving season in the US. So, the American uh, Automobile Association said that last weekend about 40 million Americans drove more than 80 kilometres. So, that every year always has a spike in the price of gasoline. So, that's another thing. So, there's this kind of perfect storm of a number of factors, all of which are coming at a bad time, uh, all coming at the same time. And that now, meaning that we're having these very high prices at the moment. And then the other thing we have to recognize is that despite the excise duty cut. That the government announced in March, government is taking uh, almost 90 cent per litre on those very really high prices being discussed at the at the start of the piece, um, and that's more than they were taking in 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 June of last year. They're taking about 10 cent per litre more in the various different taxes because VAT is obviously applied as a percentage of the of the pump price. They're actually making more now than they did before they had the excise duty cut.
5: Okay, there's a number of issues there. First of all. Have your people lobbied the government to reduce the tax cut, or the tax take, rather? We
3: have certainly been saying that they need to, to need to review the uh, view to making things more affordable for, for families and for businesses around Ireland. And, you know, the thinking behind that is we're not saying that government should not get the returns that they were, they were budgeting to get from fuel. They should get what they were expecting to get. But they're, they're they're making far far more than they were expecting now because of the high cost. They need to need to um, amend that, and that's not a very controversial decision. I was listening to um, um, Morning Island this morning, and they had the former minister for environment, climate, and communications talking about this and saying that they should suspend the carbon tax, or they should make the carbon tax dynamic so that as fuel prices rise the carbon tax drops so that you keep a a kind of a lid on, on fuel prices. And that makes an awful lot of sense. And I think we should be doing that.
5: Would it be right in saying that your organisation would be aligned with a similar organisation in Britain, France, Italy, Germany, and so on? And if so, have you people not sort of impressed upon Western governments uh, the the need to be less dependent on Russia and to be more dependent on countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Libya, uh, Kuwait, even Venezuela, where there is a plentiful supply of oil and where better deals could be done?
3: We absolutely have, and we have been for a number of years. And I think, you know, it it raises one of the most important points on this whole discussion, which is over decades, and this isn't a party political point because a number of governments have been involved in this, but over decades, the policy in this country and throughout Western Europe and North America even, is to reduce our capacity to produce fuel. So whether that be exploration bans or whether it being you know um uh, disencouraging the development of new refineries or whatever it is you know we don't want to be producing fuel because that is in some way seen as, as some sort of strike for um you know pro-environment um, measures what it actually does means is that you still have the same level of use you still have the same level of greenhouse gas emissions but you are shipping the fuel in, in further distances which actually increases overall emissions And it means that you're developing a dependency on countries and regions and regimes, which, frankly, we would rather not depend upon. So I think one of the things that might come out of this horrible tragedy is that we start thinking again about, about energy security. And we need to think about that in the context of the move to renewables. We need to be thinking about how we can, in Ireland, produce more of the energy that we need and, you know, and, and our sector is certainly very keen to, 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 you know, work with partners and work with government to make sure that we can exploit all of the renewable energy that we have and use those to, to, to deliver the energy that, that, that we need. Because right now, 50 percent of Ireland's total energy needs are met by oil. And what we're saying is we need to be looking at biofuels, advanced synthetic fuels. We need to be looking at hydrogen that can be produced from wind farms or solar whatever else and can be put into a liquid fuel that can fuel the cars that we all drive now. Those are things that we need to be looking at.
5: Kevin, uh, can I ask you, I mean, in the last number of months with the war in Ukraine and as you mentioned the supply of oil and gas from Russia into Europe and on into Ireland and so on, is the consumption, as in the purchase of petrol and diesel, has it actually gone up, gone down, or is it still at the same rate it was prior to the war starting in Ukraine?
3: So when I talk about the perfect storm, you have to think back a little bit further and think back to COVID times. So when we had the, the strictest lockdown, volumes, fuel volumes were, were, I mean, incredibly low. And they have been gradually building back up and they haven't quite hit the, you know, returned to the, their, their peak at the time of the invasion. That's because lots of people, uh, lots of office workers in particular, are maybe doing two or three days in the office rather than five And that has seen a little bit of an impact. You see that particularly in petrol because private cars uh, or 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 petrol is far more common in private cars than anything else. So there there has been a little bit of a dip. It was it was returning. We haven't seen um, a, a dip since the invasion of Ukraine or not. Nothing very meaningful. You have little fluctuations, but nothing very meaningful. And what that what that proves is this idea that by increasing the price of oil products, you in some ways discourage the use. And that's been the basis that government has um, justified its price increases on fuels over many decades. So they're saying that, well, if we increase the price, if we put the carbon tax, that will move people away from fossil fuels and move them to electric vehicles or move them to other renewable technologies. That just doesn't work. And it's been proven not to work over many, many decades. So, you know, government needs to be real and say that the, the extra taxes that they put on fuel are stealth taxes. And, you know, you can argue if you are, if you live in Eamon Ryan's constituency, where you have the Lewis and you have the Dart and you have Dublin Bus and cycle lanes and pedestrian... Um, you have public so, transport en masse, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and loads of taxes Well, probably taxes in Dublin, but, you know, taxes... Maybe it can disincentivise people from using their private car. Maybe they say, oh, well, I will get the Lewis rather than driving. But if you live in rural County Louth, or if you live in North Cork where my mother lives you don't have those options so what so what is it you're going to and and they, they the government knows this but they keep putting these increased costs on the industry increased costs particularly on consumers and tell us that it's in some way it's a strike for the environment I really don't
5: believe it. Well, on that very point, I mean, what are the implications, for example, in relation to the supply of food? Because if diesel for tractors and lorries goes up in price, uh, the farmers and the truckers have to pass those price increases on to the cost of the goods they're selling to the supermarkets and so on. And you and I have to pay more in the shops and this then feeds into inflation and so on. I mean, what are the long term implications if this increase in the cost of petrol and diesel goes on?
3: It's why it's so important that the government takes a look at taxation, Ken, because everything that you will find on the supermarket shelves in Dundalk this afternoon will have been delivered on a truck that's fueled by diesel. So as fuel prices increase, the inflationary impact of fuel is far greater than it is in any other sector. So we have to recognise that. And that's why we have to keep, a, keep a, a, a tight control on this. And yes, there have been some, some I think, fairly minor concessions made to the haulage industry because they've been making this point. There hasn't been much for farmers um, and uh, the the government really needs to look at how they can help those people. And and the other thing that you have to recognize when you think about farmers, rural Ireland, yes, they have a high dependency on private vehicles. Agriculture is very heavily uh, dependent on diesel, but also 60% of homes in rural Ireland depending on oil for their heating. Now that's not such a big problem in June, But if we're in this situation in November, December, January, February, that's going to have a massive impact as well. And that's going to have a real impact on people's budgets. So we need government now to have a really careful look at taxation of fuel, look at how they can cushion the blows for people who don't have alternatives.
5: Okay. Um, the budget is expected in October. There's been rumours of a mini-budget to deal with the cost of living crisis. I mean, will your members or indeed your organisation fuel for Ireland? Will you be lobbying the government over the next number of weeks and months to say, look, you got to do something here about the tax take from petrol and diesel uh, otherwise we'll reach a situation where nobody will be buying, well metaphorically speaking, nobody will be buying petrol and diesel because the price will be beyond the reach of uh, of people, particularly on low incomes,
3: I don't even think that's the case, Ken. I think because people people very rarely buy fuel for the crack. People people are not saying, "Oh, fuel is cheap today, so I'll go for a spin." People, you know, people use petrol, diesel, and home necessities yeah. because they need to use it. So what it means is, if you think that it's necessary, it means that they're going to choose not to do other things. And you know, we've already heard that horrible phrase, "heating or eating." You know, but that, those are the sorts of choices that people are making. Do they want a cold house for their kids to be asleep in, or do they, do, they, do they want to feed the family properly? Those are the sorts of choices that people are being forced to make right now. We don't think that's fair. We think that, that, that as government has increased its tax take on fuel, they need to remedy that and give that back to the consumers, not, not leave government with less income from fuel than they thought they were going to have, just have what they thought they were going to have and give that extra 10 cent per litre back, to the consumer, take that inflationary pressure out of the economy and make things just a little bit easier. Because let's be honest, I think we all know there's going to be tough economic times coming. Uh, They're already here and they're they're likely to get tougher. So we need government to be reasonable about how they are uh, levying taxes on fuel consumers.
5: Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. We'll keep our fingers crossed that the war in Ukraine ends soon and that hopefully the price of petrol, diesel and, of course, home heating oil comes down uh, to the... Level it was at prior to the war starting. That's uh, Kevin McPartland there, who is the chief executive officer of Fuel for Ireland. Now, what I'm going to do is I just want to refer back to an issue we discussed on the program yesterday. You may recall we had Danny Fitzpatrick on, who was representing uh, 37 taxi operators in Navan. And under what's called the Navan 2030 plan, the council in Navan, that's Meath County Council, are planning to move the taxi rank from just outside uh, the Navan shopping centre on the Kennedy Road. ...side of the shopping centre, around the back onto Abbey Road, just there along where the Garda station is. And a number of taxis are incensed about this because they say that the footfall is all but zero uh, at that side of the shopping centre and this will affect their business. And we contacted Meath County Council yesterday for a statement. They got back to us uh, this morning... And the statement reads as follows. The Council, this is Meath County Council, engaged with the public, including a representative of taxi drivers in Navin back in 2017 as part of the statutory public consultation process for the Navin Town Scheme. And the uh, plan for Navin 2030 was adopted by the Council and the feedback at the time was generally positive to the proposed changes. Uh, the council statement goes on to say that the revised layout for Kennedy Road in Navan, including the relocation of the existing taxi rank, which has 12 spaces, to Abbey Road, was included in the Part 8 plans adopted in 2017. Last year, the council adopted also, following a statutory public consultation process, new taxi bylaws for Navin, namely the Navin Town Appointed Stands Taxi Bylaws of 2021, which will introduce additional taxi parking spaces for Navan, And as part of the new bylaws, two new taxi spaces have been installed at Bruce Hill adjacent to the Aldi store. And the council goes on to say it is noted that upon completion of the new taxi rank on Abbey Road, the use of the existing taxi rank on Kennedy Road where there are 12 spaces, is to be revoked and a new taxi rank created on Abbey Road with 11 spaces. And it goes on to say that when the upgrade works on Kennedy Road are complete, including the bus interchange, there will be seven new taxi spaces created on Kennedy Road directly adjacent to the bus interchange, which is available to the public, including shoppers and also bus passengers disembarking from the bus service. And it is intended to provide a further two- Time plates taxi spaces uh, from 7pm to 6am and loading from 6am to 7pm at this location also. And the council statement goes on to say that a newsletter was circulated last month to drivers at the rank in Navan, and further communication updates are planned. So... It seems from the council statement that they've engaged with the taxi operators, although Danny Fitzpatrick did say yesterday that they felt they had been ignored. So this is something we feel that's going to run on for some time before there's a satisfactory outcome. So uh, it's something we'll keep an eye and an ear on uh, in the coming months. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break.
6: Michael, Michael Reed
5: on LMFM. on LMFM. Now I know a number of you have been touch in relation to our interview with David Cullenan earlier on in relation to hospital waiting lists. We'll try and get through those comments uh, a little bit later on before the programme ends. But uh, one particular comment came in from Maraid in Drogheda. She says, my daughter commutes to and from Dublin every day and the cost of petrol is absolutely crippling her. She doesn't have a choice but to drive herself because of where her job is located and also she is not able to work remotely because of the nature of her job. Everything should be done to try and reduce the cost of petrol. They can start by reducing the tax. Okay, moving on. The Irish Cancer Society is currently experiencing a shortage of night nurses for its end-of-life palliative care service in County Louth, in particular. Now, the Irish Cancer Society night nurses provided over 460 nights of care to 140 families in Louth and Meath last year, and more nurses are needed, so as many requests for assistance as possible can continue to be satisfied. Well, to assess this... uh, emerging difficulty i'm joined by caroline webb who lives in screen and she's a palliative care night nurse and uh, it uh, is part of a service the night nurse service is part of a a free service in the home for end-of-life care Uh, first of all caroline um how how difficult is the situation at present
1: Uh, good morning ken and thank you for having me on joe um, yes, they're very, we're very short of nurses at the moment. Um, requests are coming in for assistance from families and we're just not able to um, uh, satisfy that need that uh, for the nurses, for the night nurses, there isn't enough of us at the moment. So we are looking to recruit um, some more night nurses um, at the moment, especially for Loudmead area.
5: Now, as I understand it, uh, the nurses get paid. So one would have thought that people who have a caring nature in them and either have experience in the health service and have some time on their hands would be queuing up uh, to take part in this service. But that doesn't appear to be the case. But the fact that the nurses are paid, um, do you think now that we've said this on the air that this might entice more people to come forward?
1: yeah you know Ken i think I think it's just that an awful lot of people don't know about the service, so this is a wonderful opportunity to let people give them some information about it. Yes, it is paid very well paid, and we also get a fuel allowance because we do do some driving at night and um, we go to different families in different areas. I cover loudmead, but I also cover Dublin as well, and um, it's very, very um, suitable to anybody really looking for flexibility because you can decide on a weekly basis how much you want to work or what nights you want to work. Now currently the Irish Cancer Society are looking for people to sort of commit to six to eight nights per month to work which really is very very little. Our shift starts at 11, finishes at 7 in the morning. Everything can be done before you go to work would suit um, you know somebody with a young family, uh, somebody possibly um, would appeal to people looking for flexibility or later career professionals seeking employment. So really it's very suitable to a whole range of nurses looking for registered general nurses and um, to fill the role with no particular experience really but they just have to be registered nurses.
5: Okay, and dare I ask, is there a particular grade or level of nursing one has to be at in order to uh, be signed up for this palliative care program?
1: No. No, there isn't, not at all, Ken. Uh, Full training is given, um, medication training is given. We do have to give medication at night time. But to be honest, it's basic nursing care. You're just there for the family and for the patient um, for the night. You are really like the family's comfort blanket as a support, really, and make sure that... You take care of um, the person in the home for the for the night and sometimes let the family sleep as well because they're totally exhausted. They're so appreciative of this service. Sure. It's unbelievable. And um, you just meet such beautiful, lovely people. Um, I'm doing it seven years and I don't regret um, any, any day of it. I just love the job. It's um, very, very special, very rewarding and very humbling as well. Um, and- because...
5: Yeah, I was going to ask you there that where a family puts in a request for a night nurse, uh, and that request can't be met, what sort of uh, what sort of difficulties does that create for the family in question if mum or dad, who's in their final years, even final weeks or months, uh, can't be looked after?
1: Well, specifically in, my, in Meath and low there can be a problem because there isn't a hospice attached to those counties. So really, after five o'clock in the evening, um, once the day palliative care team go off duty, there's very little apart from doctor on call if they run into trouble um, during the night. So, you know, if a nurse doesn't come, an Irish Cancer Society nurse, if they can't get one, it just means that stress is for the night for the family they don't know if the if their if their loved one is going to be in pain how can they give medication and as well as that they can't sleep you know most of the time they do rest once we arrive and they hand over the care to us so it is a huge problem if if they can't get a nurse It really is
5: and let me ask you this question i mean has the irish cancer society either through the hse or the various health agencies have you've done have you done a trawl of we'll say people who might be we'll say retired nurses in the loudmeath area who might be enticed uh, to undertake this work or is it a case of uh, the individuals that you're seeking they're just not there i
1: think they are there Ken but as I said previously I really don't think that a lot of people are aware of the job and what it entails. Um, I don't think they have gone through databases of retired nurses. I think they're trying to do it this way first to drum up enthusiasm uh, for and um, the role and see where this takes them.
5: And do you have any idea how many will say Available personnel from the nursing profession just might be available in the loudmead area
1: well, I mean we we'd probably be hoping for maybe eight to ten nurses to come forward. Um, because we are extremely short at the moment, but we don't know how many are available or who may not be working at the moment. So really, it's just getting the message out there um, about the job. And, um, you know, if somebody does give it a chance and try it, they certainly won't be disappointed. I mean, most of the nurses that do start in this job stay in it and it's just a matter of them retiring that they have to leave and even those people that have to leave are always so sorry to leave the irish cancer society is a huge support to the nurses as well our our organization
5: just one final question um how can people get in touch if there's anybody listening to this program at the moment and uh, they say to themselves yeah i think i'll sign up for this who do they contact
1: Okay, so they can apply through recruitment at irishcancer.ie or they can phone 01 231 0524. There's also a career section and um, ICS website which is www.cancer.ie or finally there's a free phone number which is probably the handiest, 1 800 200 700.
5: Okay, well, we wish you the best with that and uh, hopefully you'll get the numbers you require for that service in the Loudmead area. That's uh, Caroline Webb on the line there from Screen who is a palliative care night nurse and uh, just a little insight there into the difficulties faced in getting adequate numbers uh, to deal with palliative care in the Loudmead area. Okay, we'll take a break. come back to us. Michael Reed on LMFM. I just want to get to some of your comments before we move on to our final item this morning. Mary was listening to the discussion on hospital waiting lists and she says she has been trying to make connect make a connection with Blanchardstown Hospital to cancel an appointment that they sent out to her as she's recently received an appointment elsewhere. She's been trying to make contact with them for several days but cannot get talking to anybody for love nor money. She's caring for her husband and doesn't have time to wait on the phone for hours at a time when she calls them. Tommy was in touch to to say Sinn Féin can throw everything they have at the hospital waiting lists issue but they still won't solve it this is an age old problem that has been handed down from one government to the next and none of them have been able to get a handle on it maybe if the government and the HSE focused on proper recruitment protocols and on paying healthcare staff the wages they deserve then maybe, maybe we would see our newly graduated doctors and nurses uh, not leaving the country as they currently are In their droves. Okay, I want to move on to our final item this morning. And apparently, two thirds of adults in Ireland do not know how to make a complaint to authorities regarding unfit food or poor hygiene practices. Now, the news comes as the Food Safety Authority of Ireland launches a new awareness campaign uh, on the issue and to basically say if you come across unfit food, uh, this is what you do to address the problem i'm joined on the line right now by jane Ryder, who is the communications manager with the food safety authority of ireland um can i put it to you jane that maybe sometimes when people come across unfit food as you call it they just couldn't be bothered
2: yeah hi ken um yeah i don't know if they're not bothered but maybe they just don't know where to go or maybe they think that if they do make a complaint nothing's going to happen um, and why we're launching this campaign is just to let people know if they do see something, they need to say something, and we will follow up with the inspectors they are probably be the environmental health officers who work in the HSE um, so they should bother, and I suppose the other thing is if you see something wrong or the food isn't you know hasn't been cooked properly, it could be dangerous for somebody else. So maybe, you know, if, if a food business is constantly doing something wrong, it could actually make somebody very ill. So we would like them to make a complaint. Sure.
5: But can I ask you, what what's the definition or what constitutes unfit food?
2: So if it hasn't been cooked properly, if its um hasn't been stored at the right temperature, if it's not fit for purpose, in other words, hence the word unfit. So, if it, as I said, it hasn't been cooked properly, it hasn't been stored at the right temperature. So, in other words, if something that should be in the fridge hasn't been stored in the fridge and it's been served on a count- stored on a counter, then that would be classed as unfit
0: food.
5: Okay, uh, if I buy a pizza in a shop and uh, I bring it home and then I discover that the sell-by date has expired by two or three days, does that constitute unfit food?
2: It would if it was a use by date. Yeah. So if something says use by a certain date, you have to use it by the date. And so, in other words, it shouldn't be sold in the shop past its use by date, so you should bring it back. If something has passed its best before date, there's not necessarily a food safety issue with it, but it mightn't meet the manufacturer's standard. So um, it wouldn't be unsafe to eat something past a best before date, but it would be very unsafe to eat something past.
5: Okay, but on on that point, as I said, if I bought the proverbial pizza and I brought it home and I discover it's it's two days past its expiry date, um, logic says I just simply bring it back and either get a refund or a replacement um, that... uh, What I'm trying to say is I couldn't be bothered going to the bother of reporting the shop for selling food that had passed its expiry date because it might be just nothing more than an accidental oversight in the shop. Isn't that a common practice?
2: Yes, and that's fine. I mean, we would encourage people in the first instance to say it in the shop or maybe say it in the restaurant. So that's totally acceptable. But I suppose if something's more serious, we would like them to come to us. So something like that, maybe just the stock rotation was bad in the shops that you bought the pizza in and they didn't see it. So, I mean, that's that these things sort of happen. But if it's something more serious, um, we would like you to come and make a complaint.
5: OK you know occasionally we all pull up uh outside a chipper and we go in and we buy maybe um you know a bag of chips or uh, a chicken or whatever whatever we eat uh and then we we go to munch it after we've hopped in our car and discover that it's it's pretty cold or it's not as hot as it should be does that constitute unfit food
2: well it depends what temperature so i mean if, if it's not hot you should bring it back or you should bring it home and heat it back up again i mean hot food should be hot. And cold food should be cold. So um, it depends really on what the food is. But yeah, if it's lukewarm, it wouldn't be really safe to eat it, especially chicken.
5: Yeah, isn't the, the other problem, too, that if, for example, if you go to um, a restaurant, your favourite restaurant on a regular basis, and on one particular night you're served a dish that's either uh, cold or not cooked the way you want it, you don't want to be kicking up a fuss and reporting the restaurant to the Food Safety Authority of Ireland because you may be seen as being uh, a grumpy customer and who ultimately, following a complaint, would be unwelcome in the future. Isn't that a common problem as well?
2: Well, that shouldn't be a problem because anyone who makes a complaint to us, um, is, um, their details are kept private. So the food business will never know who's made the complaint to them. So we send on the details of the person who's made the complaint to the environmental health officer. And the environmental health officer just has those details so that they can contact them and find out what the problem was. But a food business will never know who's made a complaint to them.
5: Okay, well, the Food Safety Authority of Ireland does a lot of uh, spot checks on the likes of uh, takeaway restaurants and so on. What sort of rate of prosecution uh, have you achieved over the last number of years in terms of putting manners on people who serve food either poorly or it's not properly cooked?
2: Well, I suppose food safety isn't about prosecuting. Food safety is about food businesses doing the right thing and food businesses by law, have to serve safe food to you and me. And um, that's really what it's all about. But the enforcement officers, the environmental health officers, or the inspectors, they do have the power to close down a business if something's not right, um, or they can serve different different powers. So prosecution will be kind of the last line of defence. Um, but there are other ones, as I said, like the closure order or a prohibition order where they're prohibited from selling something. But really, it's up to the food businesses. If you're selling food, um, you know, you need to make sure that it's safe. And if it's not safe, the line is it's not food.
5: OK, well, if somebody has a bad experience or comes across what you call unfit food, uh, where do they go with their gripe?
2: So un- it's unfit food or also poor hygiene practices, because if you're in a food business and it's filthy dirty it shouldn't be and so what they can do is go onto our website we have an online complaint form and it's at fsai.ie forward slash make it better
5: okay We'll leave it there. That's said, Jane Ryder there, Communications Manager with the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. Before we go, just returning to our discussion yesterday in relation to the decision of Andy McEntee to step down as Meath Manager. Mark was in touch and he says he agrees that it's time for fresh blood in Meath. Andy was manager for over six years and the results weren't what they should be. A new approach will help shake things up and renew enthusiasm within the time. Gillian from Midlouth was in touch and she said she was listening to the interview yesterday with David Sheehan uh, of LMFM our sports department and she went on to say that she agrees with his comments regarding the situation. Those who usually criticise are the ones who never do anything for anyone else and just sit and moan. It is disgraceful that those trying to give back are subjected to abuse. I want to wish Andy McIntyre all the best and I'm not from Meath at all. He has given great service to the Meath team. And I think we all agree with Gillian's comments there. And that's just about it for me. Michael Reid will be back in the hot seat tomorrow. I want to thank Maggie McGuire and Marie Kearns for putting the program together. Chris Murray on sound. I'm Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again sometime soon. And until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reid Show podcast. Tune in weekdays
3: from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael
5: at lmfm.ie